what's the worst job that you've ever had? What's the best job that you've ever had? Perhaps the answer to that question lies within a few things. Maybe it's a job that you enjoyed or didn't enjoy. Maybe it was the pay that it brought or didn't bring. Maybe it was the people that you worked with or you worked for. Worst job, best job. About 8 a.m. this morning, I realized about three and a half years ago, I already shared the story of my worst job experience, but the reality is it's still my worst job experience. And maybe you forgot, maybe you weren't here three and a half years ago, but humor me with the story. I was finishing up college between my junior and my senior year of college, and I needed a summer job, and I'd worked the same kind of job since I was about 15 at a golf shop. And I said, I'm not going to work for, in the golf business this summer. And so I decided, as the guy, my wife will tell you, who can't multitask, I decided to go to work as a waiter at a restaurant. Anybody waited tables, know the subculture of restaurants? Glorious place, right? Had a buddy in Louisville, Texas. I was in Denton, Louisville, Texas. There's a Chili's right there in Louisville, right off the road. Think chicken crispers. I don't even know if they sell those anymore. There's so much nasty in those things or awesome blossoms. Old timer with cheese. Maybe that's lunch today. I don't know. Worst job I've ever had. First of all, it was the worst job I ever had because I was bad at it. I couldn't multitask. I couldn't keep up. The second reason it was a bad job is because nobody seemed to want to work there either. It was just a doggy dog kind of job. And third, the boss I had, he's about 35-year-old guy, red hair, sorry redhead, single, but it fit the description. He was just an angry single guy. Nobody wanted to work for him. It was a rough job. I was terrible at my work. And when that three months was over and I went back to school, I don't think there's been two or three times that I've been back to a chili since. So don't give me a gift card for chili. It was terrible. You ever been there? Worst job? Are you there now? Maybe? Currently, what kind of job do you have? Do you love your job? Do you hate your job? Is it in between? Students, maybe you're saying, well, I don't have a job yet. Hey, mom and dad would say this. You're a student, and that's your job right now. And maybe today as we celebrate, stay it. Or mothers, whether you work inside the home or outside the home, you have one of the most important jobs, whether you work outside and inside the home, to raise your t- children, to care for the home. So whether you're a stay-at-home mom, whether you stay at home or where you work, whether you work outside the home, does God care about our work? Does God care about how we work? How do you serve as an employee when you're not the boss? How do you serve when you are the boss? What's your work ethic? What's your attitude? What are your motivations in work? Do you think it makes a difference to the watching world around you? We know from the scriptures that God has blessed work Before Adam and Eve sinned against God, remember where he put them? He put them in the garden to cultivate it and to work it. So work is good, and yet the fall happens, right? And Adam and Eve, after the fall, it says, by the sweat of your brow, you will work. Thorns and thistles, that work would be difficult. It would be toil. It would be labor. And yet Christ, we believe, redeems even our work. 
I hope he does. I mean, we spend as Americans 47 on average, 47 hours a week in our work week working. More than half of your waking work hours of the day are spent working more time likely than you even spend with your family. No, we believe in Christ-centered work, not man-centered work, not boss-centered work, not money-centered work, not climbing the ladder type of work, Christ-centered work. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 6, and we'll be in verses 5 through 9, and I want to show you that your work, whether you're an employee or an employer, or you work in the home, or you're a student, whatever you do, it matters to God. And as you turn there, what we've seen in the last few passages as we're in the second half, the application, the orthopraxy part of the book of Ephesians, what we've seen is how we walk in this world matters. And we've seen the roles of husband and wife and the roles that God has given us. We've seen the, the roles of parents and children. And we come really to the third aspect of that in a household and we see something interesting to our ears and our sight. It looks very different than today. Today we look at the way work would happen inside and even outside the home. Masters and servants. And listen, this text to our work today, bosses, okay, bosses and employees is not apples to apples. But by the end of today, I think you'll see that there are some similarities, some timeless biblical principles that will guide our relationship to our workplace. Ephesians 6, 5 through 9. I'm going to read it, then I'm going to give you some really critical cultural background so we rightly interpret and apply it. And then we're going to look through what it looks like when you are the boss and when you're not the boss. Walk with me. Ephesians 6, 5 through 9. Bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ. Not by the way of I service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, not your boss. Whether he is a bond servant or he's free, masters do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. When you see the words bondservant and master, or maybe your Bible even says slave and master, what, do you, what does your mind think of? Your mind thinks of 17th to 19th century slavery, does it not? I want to show you how what's happening in the first century, while not incredibly equitable, was not what you think of when you think of master and servant even though that's programmed into our brain. And here's the deal. You see it not only in this text. You see it in the book of Titus. You see it in the book of First, First Corinthians. And so you've got to figure out what to do with it. And one of the ways that people wrongly interpret it, if secular people, if you will, are just reading it, you might come to the conclusion, or even as a believer, that God just says, hey, God doesn't deal with this. He's advocating for slavery or oppression, and that's just not true. And in the church, if you look at 17th to 19th century, what you see is that it was the slave owners and even people in the church that would use texts like this to justify their actions 
And that's not what's happening either. So I want to give you some background. Maybe in no other important text in the Bible, this is important background for us to understand what was happening. And I want to differentiate first what was happening in the first century from what, what was happening in 17th to 19th century America. And then I'm going to talk about the ills of first century as well. So go with me. First of all, what was going on with master-servant in first century was not racial. It was not racial at all. All races became servants or indentured servants. Most of those were from captivity from war, especially in the Roman Empire, or they were born into it, or there were debts that people needed to pay off so they either were slaves or they became servants And even some people voluntarily became indentured servants to a household so that they could provide for their own family. That sounds very different, doesn't it, from 17th to 19th century? The second reason is this, how it was different. The second way it was different is it usually almost always was not lifelong. As a matter of fact, the Roman law in that day had a rule for a household that they could only have servants for six years in their home. And then they could be set free by either earning their freedom from their wages, which they had, or by their freedom. By the age of 30 in that culture, in first century, 50% of servants weren't servants anymore. They were freedmen. And third, this is not a scenario in the first century that was not without pay or even status or rights. Often these indentured servants, not always, we'll get to that, were cared for by the family that they were in, that they wore the same clothes as the family, that they were caretakers of children, of property. They were even bankers and financiers. Let me give you a biblical example of someone that went from being a servant to someone in power. Do you remember in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 24, where you see Paul coming to Rome and thrown in house arrest? He's thrown in prison, and basically because the Jews wanted to kill him in Jerusalem. There's a guy named Felix, and Felix was the governor of Rome, and his mother, his mother had, excuse me, he was governor of Rome. Claudius, the emperor at the time's mother, Antonio freed Felix, and Claudius made him a governor in Rome. So that's an example for us that this is a person who went from being a servant in a household, a high household, to the very governor of the province that they were in. And so that's an example. And a few other facts about first century servanthood. There were over the beginning of the century, there were over 60 million servants and households, a third of the population of this book, Ephesus, Ephesians, a third of the population in the city of Ephesus were servants and households. So what do you think the dynamic in the first century church was like in this place, in Ephesus? There were both masters and household owners who are masters and servants inside of this church. And this is why Paul is addressing it. He addresses it here. Pop quiz, Bible pop quiz, and we'll move on. 
Does anybody know the New Testament book of the Bible where you have a master who has servants who host the church and Colossae in his home? This is a master who has servants in his home. Anybody know? Philemon. Do you remember the story of Philemon? It's a New Testament book after the book of Titus. Philemon. The story goes something like this, we think. Philemon was a master in his home, and it looks like his servant, Onesimus. It looks like he likely stole something from Philemon. In first century law, if you stole something from your master, you could be killed. That was the law. And so it looks like he runs away, and somehow Onesimus goes to Rome, and he runs into Paul in house arrest. And what does Paul do? Paul leads Onesimus to Christ. He leads him to Christ, and rather than tell him, telling him after he leads him to Christ, stay here, don't ever return to Philemon, he's a bad guy, he's your master, he sends him where? He sends him back. And he gives Philemon, excuse me, he gives Onesimus a letter. He says, these are instructions for your master. And I think the reason we have the book of Philemon is because Onesimus brought that letter back. He actually went back to Philemon's home. And what does that letter tell us? It says, Paul says to Philemon, whatever he did to you, credit it to my account. He is now your brother. He's not just a bondservant anymore. He is your brother. Treat him like a brother. So, lest you think or hear me saying that the first century was a wonderful working environment between servants and masters, don't hear that. You and I live in a way more equitable, just work environment, socioeconomic work environment. I'm not suggesting at all that it that it was equitable. As a matter of fact, the New Testament says really clearly people who are enslavers and list of sins, the Bible is really clear that any kind of ownership of another human being is not just. So hear me saying this. Why? Because God is impartial. It's not as equitable, but it was the structure it was the socioeconomic structure of the day. And notice something both with Jesus and with Paul and New Testament writers. They spend less time trying to break down those social structures. And what they actually do is lift up. Lift up a gospel work ethic, whatever your lot may be. And that makes us really uncomfortable, doesn't it? That makes us feel kind of like there's a cultural insensitivity. But this was what Paul was doing in the New Testament. He was saying, no, whatever your lot is. In 1 Corinthians 7, he says it this way, if you can become a freeman, do it. Be a freeman, but no, even if you're not a freeman, you're still a bondservant of Christ. And bosses, in 1 Corinthians 7, just because you're the boss doesn't mean you're not a bondservant of Christ as well. So whether you're free or you're a servant, serve Christ. He raises the sights of work, whatever the scenario was for people. 
And so let me bring this back to us. Think about it this way. If Paul told Christian masters to treat their servants the way this text tells them to treat it, with a Christ-likeness, and he calls servants in the first century, and this is wild for us, servants in the first century to respect their bosses, their masters, with a Christ-likeness, even in a deeply broken, broken, inequitable social structure of work, how much more, bosses, how much more should you treat your employees or those who work under you with respect and honor and grace? How much more employees, people who have someone above them, how much more should we work unto the Lord, whatever the lot may be? So with all that behind us, I want you to see how Paul encourages us to set our eyes on work maybe differently than we do in a very temporal way. To set our eyes above as it relates to our work, whatever your scenario is. Look at it. Verses 5 through 8, if you're not the boss effectively, if you have to submit or follow someone above you, if you are under authority, Notice the lion's share of these verses are for you. I think it's this way because if you're hanging out in a church and you're worshiping like a Sunday morning like this in Ephesus, you may have your, your, your bosses in the room. We've got a few of those scenarios here, don't we? People that work for people in this room. And it'd be really easy for a person to get bitter and frustrated and angry if they're not happy with their boss. And so notice the lion's share of the verses are for the employee, the person who's submitting themselves. Notice also the attitudes that you see in verses 5 through 8, the motivations this text gives for our work. Notice the heart issues, obey or respect your earthly boss from a sincere heart wholeheartedly, like for real, not just eye service, not just as people pleasers. You know, you've done it, I've done it. I did it at Chili's. When the boss is looking, right, eyes, when the boss is looking, I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing. When the boss comes around, I'm telling the boss how great I'm working, people pleasing, but are you doing it wholeheartedly? Think about your work right now. Is it for eye service or is it for people pleasing or is it for something else, the Lord. Ask yourself these questions as we walk through this. There's respect, there's a wholeheartedness to this. There's a willingness here, do you see it? That you shouldn't be lazy with your job, no matter how bad your boss is, no matter how bad the environment is, that you should work willingly, that you shouldn't need external motivation or your boss telling you over and over and over to do your job, by the way, bosses don't like to do that. If they've given you a role, they want you to do your job and take initiative. You may not have a job that long if you don't. And then look at it. It says, work in a way where you realize you'll receive back. Look at verse 8. It says you'll receive back from your boss. No. You'll receive back from your fellow workers. No. You'll receive back money, acclaim? No. You'll receive back from who? 
Where is his sights? Where is he telling these people their sights should be with their work? Receive back from the Lord. Think about being a servant in the first century that you're bound to this for at least six years. And he's still saying, this is radical, isn't it? He's still saying, work in a way that honors Christ. Set your sights, not on the temporal, but on the eternal. And notice how all these instructions, these heart issues, notice how they're framed. Do you see how they're framed here? In relation to Christ, it says, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ. You're working for him. As bondservants, not of your master, but of Christ. The will of God from the heart. The doing the will of God to the Lord. That you're working expectantly, not for a reward from your boss, but from the Lord. Do you notice this? Man, this will preach, won't it? This will preach in our own lives. These are great truths, heart issues that we need to think about our work. So whether you're at home with your kids or whether you're a student or whether you work outside the home in business as a teacher or a pastor or whatever it is, great instruction, great biblical principles for us as we work, not just in a temporal way, but to Christ. Do you see that? My grandfather, as I think of people in my life that I look to and I go, man, this is someone who worked for the Lord. My grandfather was born in 1909, Orville O'Neill Simpson. No relation to the Simpsons, okay? Great man, born in 1909. 1909, think about that. Went through the Great Depression as a kid. He was the oldest of 12 Lived on a ranch, a big ranch, a farm, worked his tail off as a kid, went to World War II as a postman. Yes, sir. Went all over the world as a postman in World War II. Came back home, built his own rock house that still stands today on our land. And my dad would say he was the hardest working, kindest, godliest man that he'd ever been around. He's a man who loved the Lord, who was kind to people, who worked hard and serving the Lord. I remember as a little kid, he was dying of emphysema for about five years, and our family moved into his home. And I watched him for the last five years of his life. I watched his attitude even as a dying man. And I heard the stories from neighbors and friends of his work ethic. I watched him. Even with a walker, even with the air right here and on him, opening his Bible every morning, telling me stories, encouraging me, and what it meant to be a servant, what it meant to be someone who worked hard as an elementary school kid. You got any examples like that in your life? You got any examples that you can point to that help you? Man, that's God's gold for you to point to people. Maybe it's somebody you currently work with. Maybe it's somebody in your family to give you that example with skin on it of what it looks like when you're not the boss, what it looks like to work and take initiative for the Lord. I love how Paul here raises our sights on our work. So let me just ask you, how's your work ethic? How's your work ethic? Are you a complainer or a grumbler? Are your eyes always set on all the problems? Or are your eyes set on your real master? Jesus. See, you work for him, 
through him to him. What would your, this was a hard one, what would your boss say? The person above you, what would they say about you and your work ethic? Do you just talk about Jesus or do your actions show that you're a follower of Christ, that he is your ultimate master in your work? I want to give you one caveat, especially from the first century where we have a different kind of scenario. A caveat. This is not the first century. And if you're in a work environment that is abusive, that they're not paying you what they said they would pay you, where your boss is abusive, get a different job. You are free. Get a different job. Go find a different job. Maybe you don't quit before you line something up, but go get a different job. You can do that. You're free. So I'm not saying this morning, stick it out. You may need to stick it out, but you may need to just go find a different place where you can work. It's to the Lord. But let me give you one other caveat to that caveat. Can I do that? If the pattern, okay, you've got to kind of get downwind of yourself on this one. If the pattern of your work life over five, ten years is you go from job to job to job to job and you're frustrated at the same things, it's the boss's fault. The boss doesn't do what I want him to do. Where there's the same work ethic issue that boss after boss after boss has brought to you, maybe, just maybe, it's not all the boss. Maybe there's things that you need to consider in your own life that you can work as unto the Lord in a better way, that you could raise your sights, that you could own the things that you bring to the table maybe that you need to deal with. So you can work in an excellent way. What about when you are the boss? Or you're both under authority and people are under you. Maybe when you're managing people, but you are somebody's boss. What then? Look at verse 9. You get one verse, but it's packed. Look at it. Masters, do the same to them. This mutual submission. Stop your threatening, knowing that he is both master and yours, is in heaven and that there's no partiality with God. Let me tell you something. Like a husband to a wife, like parents to children, especially fathers in the first century, this idea that masters had to stop threatening is radical because that's the way authority worked in the first century. This is a radical concept that Paul is laying on the Ephesians. He's saying, no, 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 it's wrong. Not the Christian. The Christian shouldn't threaten his employees, his servants under him. This is a radical gospel ethic. And listen, it may not in the first century have been as bad as 17th to 19th century slavery, but I can tell you story after story, anywhere there's power, there is abuse of power. And I can promise you, in first century, there are story beyond story of story of abuse. Abuse in the first century to indentured servants over and over and over. They treated many times like second-class citizen, but not so for the Christian. Stop your, the text says, threatening. Accept that the means of motivation need to be different for you, Christian boss. Does that mean 
What does that mean? That means you do need to be gracious. You do need to have clear expectations. There ought to be opportunities for your employees to learn and grow and develop. There ought to be fair treatment and fair pay. It doesn't mean, hear me bosses, if you're a boss over people and you have to make hard decisions, and they are hard decisions, it doesn't mean that you can't make those decisions that you need to make for underperforming employees. It doesn't mean that they may not need to be fired. It doesn't mean that you don't have to make hard decisions. It doesn't mean that you don't or shouldn't have good, hard conversations about work ethic with your employees. You need to do that to be a good boss. But look at the greater truth here in this text. Look at what it says. The greater truth is this. You, even if you are a boss and people are under you, you are not the ultimate master, are you? Look at what it says. Knowing that he who is both their master and, what is the next word? Yours. Is in heaven. You are not the ultimate boss. You are not the ultimate master. Jesus is. And notice something about God's ethic. There is no partiality with God. God doesn't see you as master and servant. He doesn't see you as male or female, Jew or Greek, slave or free. He sees you as one. The ground at the cross is level. So perhaps when you're in a role where you have authority, you start acting different. <laughs> you ever been there? Let's just be honest. Well, I'm better than them. God sees me as more important than them. Usually you don't plan that, but that can happen, can it not? Maybe you've experienced that as an employee. Maybe you've struggled with that as a boss. But Jesus is the ultimate master, and I want to show you how God is impartial. Remember the example of Philemon that I shared with you earlier? The master and the servant, and the servant ran away, and he could have punished him deeply, and he comes back. I want you to notice what Paul says to him. Philemon, chapter 1, it's only verses 15 through 17. Here's what Paul says to Philemon about how he should treat Onesimus. For perhaps this is why he parted from you for a while, God's providence and what happened, that you might have him back forever, no longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant. It didn't say that he's not still going to be a servant, but he's more than that. He's a what? He's a beloved brother. He's on your side. He's not below you in the Lord, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh, meaning in the scenario in first century that they're in with masters and servants, but also what? In the Lord. Do you see it? They're brothers in the Lord. So if you consider me, Philemon, your partner, receive him just like you would receive me. You see, the providence of God in this story is Paul had led Philemon to Christ, and it looks like he also led Onesimus to Christ, and he's saying, doesn't matter if you're a master or a servant, you're one. We're all brothers. Treat each other like brothers. Do you see it? No partiality with God. God doesn't look at you as a boss any different than he looks at someone who you are leading. So let me ask you, bosses, how do you treat the people that work for you? What would you say, what would they say about you as a boss, as a manager? Are you fair? Are you honest? Are you Christ-like? 
And while this scenario in Ephesians 6 isn't apples to apples, it's not. It's a different scenario. I think the closest, at least in my mind, that I can get to this scenario is this. Because it's Christian household as well, which is different for us. The closest scenario I could come up with to this is, how about the people who work in or around your house? How about the lady, maybe, who comes and cleans your house? What kind of working relationship do you have with them? Are you gracious with them? Do you treat them like you would your neighbor, like you would somebody you worked with? How about the man who comes and mows your yard? Or the crew that comes and mows your yard? How about the trashman that takes your trash? How about the mailman that drops off packages or the Amazon guy or girl that comes to your door? How do we treat people that work effectively for us and around our household? care for us? How do you treat the person who's babysitting your kid or a nanny in your home? Do you see this? Do you treat them the same way you would a neighbor or the same way you would somebody in your socioeconomic position? Someone at your work that's a colleague. You see, God is impartial and it matters, bosses, how we treat the people around us in view of how God sees us. That's tough. And then for whether you're an employee or you're a boss this morning, what's something this morning that you've heard that you can take back on Monday morning? Monday morning when you work for people or whether you employ people and they are under you. You know, I told you about my job at Chili's. It was the worst job. Haven't been back much since. It was the worst job, but in some ways it was the best job. Had the best lessons. What it taught me was is that I don't just work for a bad boss, but I work for Christ who is the ultimate master. I work really for him. It taught me that a work ethic is not predicated upon how I'm received by customers or what kind of tips I get or what kind of coworkers or boss I have, but I work in Christ's strength, through his strength, for him. It also taught me that I'm not really working for man's praise. See, I work to Christ. Maybe you have had a bad work experience as well. Can you see it through that lens? Maybe you have a bad work experience right now. And if you don't get out, maybe there's opportunities for you to raise your sights on your work. Moms at home, students in the classroom. Maybe there's opportunity in the workforce for you to say, I'm going to view my job and my work differently because I work for Christ. I work through Christ and I work to Christ. You see, Christ is the ultimate master, but notice something about the master. He became the servant. He became the servant. Do you know that ultimate master, the servant that laid his very life down for you, who did the work for you on the cross, who is the ultimate servant who went to work in the worst conditions 
yet he still did the job for you and for me. He paid the wage that you owed that you couldn't pay. See, the master then gives you, on top of that, he gives you the riches of his grace. That's the master that we serve. Do you know him? See, your takeaway today, C3 is this. You work for Christ, you work through Christ, and you work to Christ. Let me pray.